0: once again and my gratitude uh, to all the guys that are here my gratitude to all of you brothers and sisters and any guests today joining for your participation in this streaming service this is not just a broadcast to you this is a church cast with you this is a worship moment together and as difficult as that may feel sometimes when we are in our homes or Uh, In a workplace or wherever it may be Even at this moment or at some future time If you're watching a recording and you might think You know the atmosphere around me Doesn't really feel like church to me This is a terrific moment to remember You are the church And wherever two or more are gathered In the name of Jesus Christ The church is there, the body of Christ is there And it's the church and in fact The spirit of the church which is the spirit of Christ, even as we talked about last week on the birthday of the church, Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit swept like a wind, like flames of fire over the head of each one gathered, each believer there worshiping the Lord, that demonstrates that it's the spirit of the Lord that is the spirit of the church that changes the atmosphere wherever the church is gathered. So that you and I are not trying to come to a place where we find God, but rather that we are opening to be the place to host God. For God himself has said in that irrevocable word of his that he dwells and enthrones himself in the praises of his people, in the worship and the prayer of people who say, Lord, you are God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And in that way, we touch heaven with our prayers. We touch Heaven, with our worship and God touches us with his word and as we'll discuss today his word is a sword and it penetrates us and permeates us with his life with his light with his truth with his power with his proclamation a creative word of God that gives us marching orders as his people and gives us strength to carry out his mission as his body, armored in the whole armor of God. We come today to part seven of our sermon series on the whole armor of God, the full and total and replete and worthy and useful character of Christ covering us for the purposes of the Lord for which you and I were made. If you're a guest with us today or you're watching this listening to it at some future point and you say you know I'm, I'm not actually part of the body of Christ I don't usually go to church but I happen to be listening to this message I've stumbled across it I've somehow found it I, I'm looking around in the midst of the need and in the midst of the fear if I can be honest and saying maybe I need something more I want to tell you this story today. But before I do, let's pray. Lord God, we come to your word today, and we ask that as we do so, your word, which is active and alive, would penetrate into us, that your life would come into ours, afresh and anew, that we would be aligned with you, your purposes, your values your priorities. That, Father God, everything of your rule and reign of your kingdom would pattern our lives and purpose our actions. We give ourselves to you today, Lord God, because we believe that you are and that you are worthy of our praise and that you reward those who diligently seek you with all the issues of everlasting life. So open our hearts, minds, and spirit's and souls today, Lord, to receive your word. Amen. Does that mean that I wasn't heard before? Okay, I'm going to turn off my other mic. I don't know if I need to repeat anything that I just said or it's okay. All right. I got a new gift. And that's actually something along the lines of the story I want to tell you right now the young man only knew that he was in a moment of need. Looking around, he realized that he had forgotten the one thing that would be most essential in this moment. And because he was an orphan, and because he was of lowly birth, as the society that he lived in would have deemed it, the only job that was available to him, and he was grateful to get it, was a job that provided him not only work, but a home. A home in the household of uh, an honorable and wealthy man, a squire of the land whose son was to be made a knight for this young man lived in the times of knights and squires of kings and kingdoms. And so he being of lowly birth and orphan had been taken into this household and been given the role of serving as a servant to the man's son, who was to be a knight. Now this young man, he wasn't treated very well by the son, whose name was Kay. And in fact, he had a nickname, which was Wart. He was humble though, and upright of heart. Although, like all of us, maybe you can relate, sometimes he just got flustered. Sometimes he would forget. And so it was that it came to be that here he was in a town in which his master Kay was about to go through the ceremony in which a sword was necessary, and Wart had forgotten the sword. Where would he find a sword? Without that sword, he would be lost. His job would be lost. His home would be lost. And he would be subject to scorn and shame. So he went out into the streets, looking where he might possibly find something, that could serve the purpose in this moment of need. And there in a churchyard stood a rock with an anvil on top. You know an anvil, that that metal piece used by the metal workers to hammer swords and axes and other implements in ancient times to form them upon that, that firm, hard tool. By the way, if you're a fan of Warner Brothers cartoons and Bugs Bunny, you know what an anvil is, too. It's the thing that always fell on Wile E. Coyote's head and brought up a big bump. Well, in this story, Wart, the young man, happened to see that in that churchyard, in that stone, topped by an anvil, there was a sword. A sword plunged somehow into that anvil like a sheath, like a holder. All he knew was he had a need, and here was the tool that could answer that need. So he came and he grabbed that sword. The way, as I say, I just got to grab this mic from our dear brother Sean, thank you. He grabbed that sword and withdrew it from the stone and in doing so, though he knew it not, he changed his life in a way that would change the world. It's just a story, but it's the story of a young man once called Wart, whose real name was Arthur, and who came to be the King Arthur of Lore, the King of the Round Table. As I say, it's not true, it's a legend. Maybe you've read the once and future King, the novelization of that ancient legend, which tells the story of the sword and the stone, or maybe you saw the old Disney film that dramatizes it. But it's one of the most recognizable stories of a sword in our society that isn't fixated on bloodshed, that isn't fixated on war, that doesn't fixate on the sword as a weapon, but rather as a redeemer, as something which reveals an inner truth and as something which releases a promise of glory and greatness, not just for that young man, but for the whole kingdom. And that's why I want to tell the story today, because as we come to talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is described in Ephesians chapter 6, we come to the only one of the elements of the armor that the Apostle Paul is mentioning in his discussion of spiritual warfare to the church that is in and of itself overtly a weapon. I've talked about how in uh, previous uh, messages in this series some of the other implements can be seen as having not only a defensive role but also an offensive posture. For instance, when we talked about the shield of faith, we talked about how the shield of faith also enabled the one carrying that shield to advance down the field and to partner with troops to the right and to the left linking together as a phalanx of power which can claim that field of battle. And in that fashion, a shield, which we think of as primarily defensive, and so it is, can also serve an offensive purpose. But among the elements that are listed in Ephesians chapter 6, in this passage at hand that we're looking at, only the sword is immediately and utterly primarily recognizable as a weapon. And so, It is not to be mistaken that this sword of the spirit that is being described to us is indeed a tool that is useful in taking down the enemy. And as we know from this passage, that's not an enemy of flesh and blood. This is not about taking the sword to people. It is about taking the word of God into the battle and bringing the word of God against the enemy. You know that when Jesus himself faced off against the devil in the scriptures. And you can find it in Luke chapter 4. You can find it in Matthew chapter 4. The enemy continually comes against Jesus during a particularly intense period of time, 40 days, when Jesus, having been filled by the Holy Spirit, as described in his water baptism, which was also a spirit baptism. Again, you can read about that in Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, even to some extent in John chapter 1. You will see that Jesus being filled with the Spirit is led by the Spirit into a season of fasting in the wilderness and also facing off against the enemy. You know, we could recognize it this way. Jesus is led into a kind of battle with the enemy of our souls the devil and the tools that the devil uses to try and come against christ are the very same tools that the devil uses today to come against christians to come against you and me and all human beings in fact He uses the tool of temptation, the weapon of temptation. And in doing so, he sometimes even wields the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, according to Ephesians 6. But he wields it in a way that is not worthy. In other words, as the enemy has done from the very beginning, go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see that old serpent, the devil, there in the garden, taking the words of God and twisting them. It is quite literally an act of perversion. It is perverting the truth of something by taking the words of it, the letter of the law, the letter of the word, if you will, and misapplying it absent the spirit of the law, the spirit of the Lord. Instead, the enemy with his own wicked spirit misleads, deceives, lies, and tempts. But Jesus relies upon the full witness of the word because he is also filled with the spirit so that his responses to the temptations of the devil are always drawn from the word of God. And in fact, specifically in the instances that are related for us in Luke chapter four and Matthew chapter four, Jesus responds always out of the book of Deuteronomy, which is itself... A term for the repetition of the law or the repetition of the Word of God. There is a lesson for us in that. The way that we fight our battles, as the worship song says, is by re- repeating, reflecting, proclaiming, declaring the Word of God, but not the Word of God without the Spirit of God. In other words, not just the letter of Of this book, not just the legalistic notions of its most literal reading, but the full and total and holy and inspired witness also of its spirit. For there is no part of the Bible, which is really a library of books, no part of God's inspired scripture that is not active and alive. And all of it is useful and profitable for teaching, for discerning, and for fighting spiritual battles. This is the sword of the Lord. But I also want to say that when in Ephesians chapter 6 we are told to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, I think it is fair to say that though this scripture is fully and truly and holy, the word of God, it is not the only words that God speaks because God speaks by his spirit today. God continues to speak. Jesus said, my father has never stopped working and I have never stopped working. We continue to this day. And how is it that God works his works? How is it that God made all things? Did he not make them by a word in the beginning? When there was nothing, God said, let there be light. And there was light because the word of God is active and alive and is creative. And God has never stopped speaking. Now, we need the witness of these scriptures in order to rightly hear the Lord. But we need the witness of his spirit in order to rightly read this word. So the word of God is both the scriptures inspired by his spirit, and also his spirit inspiring you. Jesus himself said that the helper would be given to us so that we would remember the word. That doesn't mean that you and I don't apply ourselves diligently to reading, declaring, memorizing, understanding, rightly dividing the word, so that we have no need to be ashamed of our understanding of the word, because we ourselves have allowed the word to be applied to us like like a, a ruler, a measuring stick, to see that we are actually shaping up into the character of Christ that it describes. We have allowed the word to penetrate us, like a sword or a surgeon's scalpel, to remove that which is unworthy or unhealthy in us and to release that which is life-giving and life-growing in us. But it is also very important to recognize that the word of God to us does not just end with the scriptures, that as you and I pray, that as you and I worship, that as you and I share with one another the testimony of what God has said and of what God is doing, that we sharpen each other. Sharpen each other like iron sharpens iron. Do you have a knife block at home that has one of those sharpeners where you take the knife and you rub it against that rod in order to sharpen and hone the edge? So the Word of God sharpens us, and as we reflect the Word of the Spirit to one another as the body of Christ, we are sharpened and quickened in the things of the spirit and we are equipped and armored for the battle and victory against the enemy. The sword of the spirit is a key element of the whole armor of God. Now it's not easy to do this while you're holding a mic, but I'm going to take a quick drink of water. Let's look together once again at Ephesians chapter six, the passage at hand. For those of you who may be joining us in the midst of this series, uh, or who benefit from a bit of review, and I know I always do, this is a reminder that in Ephesians chapter six, we have the culmination of Paul's letter to the church, specifically to a church that he himself founded or planted, if you will, in the uh, ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, in the region that is modern-day Turkey that was known at that time as um, Asia Minor. And he is writing to believers who are living in the midst of a time when there is a tremendous amount of persecution for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Persecution from traditional Judaism, even though many of them, like Paul, are Jews and have embraced the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. Yet the legalistic prevalence of uh, belief uh, at that time was such that it denied the reality of Christianity as a legitimate Jewish act of worship. And so there was a lot of antagonism and even violence by Jews against Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. And there was also antagonism from the Gentile community, the Gentile world of the Roman Empire, which acknowledged that there were many, many different gods, but had no tolerance for any faith that says there is only one God, that there is one God above any other that that God is the maker, creator of all the earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that no one has seen that God at any time except that Jesus Christ, who is himself fully man and fully God, has revealed him. That was an unpalatable philosophy in the ancient Roman world. It was considered unpatriotic. It was considered um, contrary to the civic peace and purposes. It was considered, in fact, by most citizens of the Roman world as immoral, Foolish and antagonistic, and therefore Gentiles also opposed Jewish and Gentile Christians. Also in the midst of that ancient world, the believers of that time were living in an environment when there was all kinds of other idolatry, all kinds of sexual immorality, all kinds of political intrigue and injustice, graft, greed. There there was... Uh, routinely um, slavery in the society, there was ethnic strife and division, there was uh, social unrest, there was in fact tremendous inequity between the haves and the have-nots. The very wealthy lived in a fashion that diminished and disparaged and often destroyed those without means in society who were often left absent of justice or any means of recourse. Do you begin to recognize that the world that they were living in is the world that you and I are living in? In recent weeks, we've experienced so much of strife and strain, of trauma, of sorrow, of grief, of horror, of shock, illness and riots, injustice and murder, opinions and debate, confusion and Also, I would add some victory. I don't know that I even made mention of this fact, but I was one of those, and perhaps you were too, who stood astonished at the achievement of NASA and SpaceX in uh, launching uh, those men into space, once again, into the International Space Station. It is an extraordinary testimony to what human beings can accomplish when they unify in the pursuit of a goal that they can all agree Is worthy. I pray there'd be more stories like that in our days ahead. But I mention all of this primarily to say today I want to talk about the word of God. In other words, I'm not going to devote a great deal of my message to current events. Not because I don't care about them, but because they can only be rightly divided by the word of God. What do I mean by that? in science class in high school did you ever have to do a dissection some people are turned off by the topic because it disgusts them physically they hate the idea of having to deal with an animal body and dissecting it although you can do dissections of plant life too some people are disgusted by it on moral grounds feeling it's wrong to treat other living things in that way in any case i'm not here to make a comment on that but simply to say i was among those who in high school we had to make dissections and I remember that when we were given that that scalpel, which probably wasn't tremendously sharp, but it was sharp enough to do its duty and yet also to do harm, we always got the very emphatic lengthy lecture from the bio teacher or whomever it was about be careful with these and don't point them anywhere other than to the object that you are dissecting and don't play with each other and sword fight and you know, do any of the craziness that high schoolers might be prone to do, and probably not just high schoolers either. Because this thing was sharp and potent, and yet its purpose was not to cause harm, but listen now, to reveal, to get into the inside places that can't be seen from the outside, and to open them up, to reveal the channels and systems and mechanisms of life. In fact, if you will recognize it with me, it is in its own way, a glorious testimony to the creator. The way that he has made us and all living things, animals and creatures and the universe around us is extraordinary. And as we divide those things, as we cut into them and open them up, we learn more about that inner witness, that glorious structure. We learn more about creation and can learn more about the Creator. I want to talk about the Word of God today as an essential tool, an essential life-giving power for you and I to understand the times that we are living in. In fact, that's also why we are teaching on the book of Revelation in Preschool School of Ministry at this time, even though it was on our calendar to do that, and I thank God for that, because that is surely a God-ordained timing. It is also reflective of the fact that we realize that this is an extraordinarily timely season for us to be dividing the word of revelation, which in itself means unveiling, pulling back the veil, opening up what is unseen. For you and I to understand what's going on right now, it's not enough to apply our mind. It's not enough for us to feel the emotions that we feel. God is not trying to silence your mind. God is not trying to run roughshod over your emotions. But God's word will actually get inside your mind, inside your heart, inside your soul with his spirit so that your spirit and his can be aligned so that you and I can hear from him and see and understand what is going on and what our role is in it. And that role involves putting on the full armor of God. In fact, the letter of the Ephesians that Paul wrote was about enabling the church in that time, which is a time like our time, facing so many hardships and so much opposition and so much confusion, enabling them to see the truth and the glory of God's once hidden promise now unveiled and having seen it and seen their relationship with him being perfected by him and the relationship with one another being unified in him that they would take their stand upon that relationship with one another in him by that spirit covered and clothed in his character to come against the real powers and forces that are producing destruction and deception in our world which is never people although people become subject slaves if you will to those powers and forces But the powers themselves are spiritual entities. The word of God will bring down as you and I apply it. Paul puts it this way. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's those that we face in the full armor of God and stand firm on the full witness of God. And so it is those that we face with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and our focus today. I've mentioned in the past how each one of the weapons or the armaments that Paul mentions has its own unique application in our lives and our present circumstances so that we have a complete and very impressive collection of God's character and resources for addressing the situation of our times and the mission of our lives. Because to be armored in God is to be clothed in the character of Christ. Now, this personal protective equipment of the Holy Spirit has as its leading point the sword of the Spirit. That is, after all, what a troop leads with as they lead into the battle. And there is somewhere else where we are told that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Ephesians 6 makes that testimony. So does Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12 is what I want to look at. You and I are familiar with it. The word of God is active and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. But I wanna talk about the context in which that very familiar statement, familiar at least to many of us, if not to you, then it will be today, I hope. I wanna talk about the context in which it comes. Let's look together at Ephesians chapter 4. I'll give you a moment to find it in your Bible there, or you can also look at your screen. But I encourage you to have your own sword with you. If you're part of the army, you don't go out on the battlefield with an empty scabbard. But what if that's you? What if you're like wart? What if the one thing you most needed is the one thing you're not carrying with you? What if the one thing most necessary for you to understand the circumstances of the world today, for you to realize your purpose and place in it, what if the one thing needed to free you from temptation and to give you victory over the darkness is the one thing that you're not carrying with you? I'm not just talking about physically carrying a Bible. That's a good thing, but that's not the same as carrying the word in your heart. And there's plenty of people that can carry a big old hefty Bible And yet the scabbard of their spirit is empty. But what if you are like John, the one who received the revelation in the book of Revelation, who was imprisoned on an island remote and alone, an island called Patmos? And he surely didn't have the scrolls of the scripture there with him. He wasn't allowed to have a Bible the way that sometimes believers today in nations around the world are not allowed to have scriptures. And so they commit it to their heart. I remember when I was in China and met believers who could recite entire books of the Bible by memory. Not to say that there aren't those here in the United States that can do it, but it's pretty rare. But there are those there who do that because they are a living Bible. It can't be taken from them because it's in them. That's what I'm talking about. That the sword of the Lord would be in us. That we would be the stone that has the sword alive in it. And we, like living stones, would be made alive by the presence of the word of the Lord in us. So let's look at the context of this statement about the word of the Lord being active and alive in Hebrews chapter 4. Follow along with me, will you? Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let me pause to say, in a moment, we're going to look at um, a place in the scriptures where the Lord protects paradise, if you will, with a sword. Here in Hebrews chapter 4, what the, um, the author of Hebrews is talking about is the fact that there is in the Lord a place where you and I come to rest in him. It doesn't mean cessation from action. In other words, it doesn't mean not working. This is a different kind of rest. It, it, it means actually working well. It means that you and I walking in the light and easy yoke of Christ, find ourselves simply fulfilling what we were made to be, not by our own power or might, but by God's spirit. Remember how Jesus said, and I referenced earlier in this message, that his father has continually been working, and so has he? So the rest that is being talked about here is a shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace, the greeting on the day of rest, the Sabbath, notion of wholeness, completeness. The promise that you and I have of entering into that completeness still stands in front of us. Not that we have already reached the totality of that, As Paul himself confesses but Jesus who is the totality of that has reached out to us and is calling us forward into it so let's be careful that we fall short of walking into it for we also have had the good news of God's Word proclaimed to us just as the ancestors of the faith had it proclaimed to them just as the church in Ephesus had the letter to the Ephesians proclaimed to them you and I are having it proclaimed today Just as the ancient Hebrew Christians had it proclaimed to them, you and I have it proclaimed to us today. But the message that they heard in the past, here, the author of Hebrews is talking about the people of Israel who heard the word of God, but didn't receive the spirit of God. They heard, but didn't believe. And because they didn't believe, they didn't receive because they did not share the faith of those who not only received, but believed. Now, we who have believed can enter into that wholeness, that completeness, that rest. Just as God said, I declared an oath on my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That means that the only way to enter into your purpose as a human being is through faith. You cannot find it with your own wisdom. You cannot achieve it by your own strength. You cannot earn it through your own righteousness because God says, if you don't believe my word and receive it with belief, if you don't have faith, then you have no part in me. And having no part in me, you have no place in the wholeness of my rest. But here again, the author of Hebrews confirms what we've just said. God has finished his works of creation since the founding of the world. We were already told that he spoke about the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day. And yet God says in that passage referenced above, they shall never enter my rest, those who do not believe and have faith. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today. In other words, the writer here is saying, You and I have an opportunity to believe, but it's not one that we should push off to the future. It is for today. Today is the day to believe. He spoke by his spirit through King David. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Peter himself takes hold of that phrase. Paul takes hold of that phrase and uses it as an evangelistic witness to the world. If Joshua had given the ancient Israelites the rest that God was talking about, then the author of Hebrews says here by the Spirit, God would not have talked about another day. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the prior examples of disobedience. Friend, brothers and sisters, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you weary of injustice? I hear you. I feel you. But I assure you, You cannot write the injustice in yourself on your own. Talaga, you know it's true. Neither can I write the injustice in myself on my own. How then shall we write the injustice of the world if we cannot even write our own wrongs? But there is one who has overcome the world and says, take heart. Even if you face injustice, I will give you strength to persevere. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, which is not only rest from your works, but also the rest of God. I will show you, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Let the Lord show you all of what he's ready to show you. Let him show you the whole of what he's up to. Which isn't to say that you and I will come to know all the details that God has. Even Jesus himself said to the apostles as he was preparing to ascend to the Father, and they were saying, now, now is it the time for the kingdom to come? Jesus said, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but instead you'll receive the Holy Spirit you'll be endued with power from on high so that what you will know is what you need to know for today. What you will have is the sword that you need for today's battle and you'll have the whole mind of God as you have the whole character of Christ as you put on the whole armor of God so that though you don't know everything, you know the one who does and he's alive in you and in him you have hope. In him, you have strength, you have joy. And in fact, through him, you will bring righteousness into the world. You will declare righteousness. But it won't be through your own power. It'll be by his. For the word of God is alive. It's not just text. It's not just teaching. This is his word. And words are spoken with breath. And his breath, in Hebrew, the Ruach HaKodesh, the holy breath of God, is the Holy Spirit of God. And he's alive, and he's active, he's working. This scripture and God's word to you today, as he speaks to your spirit, is sharper than any double-edged sword. Sharp on both sides, cuts both ways, has something to say, coming and going. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Why does this passage come in this chapter? Why is the author of Hebrews saying these things here? Listen, he explains, or the author does. I don't know if it's a he or she. Might be a controversial statement to you, but we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of the Lord comes, whether that word is one that comes to cut us down or rather one to lift us up, is up to us. For the word of the Lord doesn't change but the word of the Lord will change all those who come under it. So you and I can either be transformed and conformed to his likeness, or we can be cut down and judged by his righteousness. I would prefer the former to the latter. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, we see that the sword, which is the word, the sword word is alive and active, sharp and divisive, discerning, and decisive. You might be surprised that I say that it's divisive, but I want to show you in a couple of additional verses that we can look at quickly as we come to the conclusion of the message, why I choose that particular term. Not only because it is in fact the testimony of Hebrews 4.12, but also because it's the whole testimony of God. In Genesis, chapter 3, I mentioned how there is a moment when God responds to the sin of people. You know the story of the garden, that the people of God, the man and the woman, believed the lie of the devil, who said that God was against them, that God was trying to keep something good for them, and that the only way that they could get the full goodness of what this world had for them was to reach out and grab what looked good to them. In other words, he used temptation To tempt them to eat the fruit that had been forbidden to them fruit that would give them knowledge of good and evil. Why is it that God would not want his people to have knowledge of good and evil? Well, that is for the mind and heart of God to know, but suffice it to say that it seems to me at least reasonable to consider that what God was trying to do was to teach his people to look to him. To know the difference between right and wrong in other words he was inviting his people into a level of intimacy in which they and he could be one and God has never changed his plan what was from the beginning the book of Ephesians says to us is God's plan still there is still a day of rest ahead of us a place back into paradise with God in oneness And today is the day to hear that word and believe it. But because in the past, our mother and father disbelieved and ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to, their eyes were open to see good and evil, but their spirits died. So that while they had information, they lacked wisdom. While they had illumination, they were blinded by that light. God said, The human being has now become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out and take hold of the tree of life. Because if we did so, we would be forever trapped in that place of fallen sin. So God banished his people out of that private, intimate presence and established an angel there with a flaming sword, flashing back and forth, spinning back and forth, to guard the way to the tree of life. Friends, I suggest that that sword is God's word and that it is a declaration that God says, you will never enter my rest if you don't believe my word, if you don't have faith in me. But if you will receive my word and have faith in me, You have nothing to fear from the flaming sword because the flame on your head is the flame of Pentecost. The sword in your face is now the sword in your hand that the word of God is in your mouth and in your heart. And the rest of God is your promise for the future. The sword of his life is the sword of his light. But that light is sharp in two directions, both sides and Divisive Is God divisive? He is in a certain way. Look with me at the words of Jesus Christ himself. Probably no figure in human history is more broadly recognized as a figure of peace, of love, of grace, of mercy, and of, of pacifism, if you will than Jesus Christ. And I would say that all of those things are true. Yet we often ignore in popular society, and we must not ignore as the people of God, that Jesus himself and the Word of God, the full, the whole Word of God, reflects the reality that Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, mighty warrior. And that Jesus is a figure of strength who does not shy away from the battle. It's just that Jesus doesn't come to fight with people. Jesus came to achieve victory over the enemy, the devil. But in doing so, those who don't believe the word of God and stand in opposition, therefore, to the things of God, they stand under the sword of God, if you will. The sword of God falls like the sword of Damocles to divide and conquer the forces of the enemy. And if you and I align ourselves with those forces, then you and I are likely to experience that kind of division. But what if we align with God? Won't we experience the peace of God? Yes, yes, yes and amen. But you shouldn't expect to experience it in the world. You have to experience it within your own heart within the body of Christ by his spirit. Jesus said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Will you say that? But a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He's quoting here from the ancient Uh, old testament hebrew prophet micah in other words this is a truth that has always been relevant for the people of god which is if you align yourself with the truth of god you will find that people of the world oppose you even people in your own household maybe your own friends some of you when you got saved saw friends reject you because you realized that god had cut you off from that old way of living God had cut you off from those nights of drinking and carousing. God had cut you off from watching those kinds of movies or hanging out in those kinds of environments. God had cut you off from doing things with coworkers that everybody in the workplace did, but suddenly you realized it's not what God would do. And in taking that stance, coworkers rejected you. Friends abandoned you, maybe in your own home. People looked to you and said, how can you believe this Jesus stuff? Or how can you turn your back on the religion that you were raised in? Or why would you believe that kind of mythology and fantasy? And your own loved ones turned against you. Don't hold it against them, friends. Pray for those who curse you, bless them, show love to them, but recognize this, it's not unexpected and it is of the Lord because God has cut you apart and set you out for a purpose that is different. Remember in the book of Ephesians, we were told, walk in the light, don't walk in the ways of dark. If you and I continue to love the ways of the world just because that's where we see friends or that's where we have family, then we are setting those things up as idols against God. Jesus himself said, take up your cross. You've got to take up your cross in order to take up his sword. You've got to lose your life in order to receive the sword of his life. And it does create division. I am going to pass over this passage in the sermon because I'm running short on time. But I encourage you to read in the book of Judges, chapter 7, the story of Gideon. I've preached out of this pulpit before in the past about Gideon. It's another example of how God cuts down the army of his people. Gideon starts out with thousands. He's coming against the idolatrous Enemies of the people of ancient Israel, and he's coming in the power of the Lord. But as he does so, the Lord says, You need to trim your forces. I want to cut you down to just 300 men. Even though he's going to be coming against thousands, and he has thousands enlisted with him, God cuts and divides that army for God's purposes, which has to do with building faith and revealing truth, which is, It's not by your might, nor by your power, but by my spirit that you will achieve the victory. And when they do achieve that victory, they do so with two things. They have a jar that has a wick in oil. In other words, it's a lantern, but the jar of clay must be broken for that light to shine. And they have a sword in order to fight the battle. But as they break the jar and reveal the light and raise that sword, they recognize this is the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. It's God's way of saying, when you have my word in your heart, you have a light in the darkness. Your brokenness doesn't hide the light, it shines it. And my word becomes your sword so that you and I are fighting as one. And in fact, the army of the enemy that Gideon and his men come to face, they turn their own swords against each other and flee in all directions. God gives the victory to that army just by raising the sword. They never even have to bring it down. You and I can have victory over the darkness and the confusion of the world simply by allowing our own broken humanity to reveal God's totality, purity, and light, and raising the word of the Lord over our life. This week, read Judges chapter 7 about Gideon and declare it over your life. Declare the word of the Lord over your life this week. Find verses, passages that God is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is quickening to your mind and raise them like a sword over your family, over your finances, over your workplace, over society, over all the issues. Of concern over COVID 19 and over police forces and over uh, demonstrations and raise the sword of the Lord, not to say I'm coming down against people, but to say the Lord is lifted up over it all. And the word of the Lord will shine like a light and send the enemy fleeing in all directions. Now, stick with me, we're almost done. I want to conclude having talked about the sword. Of God's life, which is active and alive, recognizing the reality of the sword of God's light, which divides light from darkness. I want to talk about the sword of his mouth, which is decisive and discerning. In Revelation chapter 1, we see that John that I mentioned earlier. John, who's been imprisoned on the island of Patmos simply for telling the truth of Jesus, for raising the word of God over his world, and for planting churches and being a leader of Christian churches, the Roman Empire has sentenced John to to uh, to a prison island. And John, there on Patmos, on the Lord's Day—that's this day, on a Sunday. If you're streaming live with us today, it's the Lord's Day. John is in worship. Look, he is isolated alone. He risks death on that island. There's very little resource. He's an old man, in all likelihood, by the time he's there. The world is separated from him, but he knows there's trauma in the world. But he's worshiping the Lord because that's who he is, because that's what he does, because that's how he fights his battles because he's not fighting against Rome or the Roman emperor. He's not fighting against the Gentiles or Jews of Ephesus or the ancient Mediterranean world. He is standing in the spirit as he falls in worship and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ who at that time had already died on the cross, been buried, resurrected, ascended to the Father. So John has a A vision somehow of Jesus in the spirit. But this Jesus, he is shining like the sun. His hair is white as wool. He wears a gold band around his breast. He has a robe that drapes to his feet with righteous purity. And he has a sword in his mouth. In other words, his tongue is like a sword. The word of his mouth is a sword. If you want to know more about that, come to my Revelation class today at 1 p.m. We're going to be looking at that passage today. But I want to talk about the sword of Jesus' mouth, which he gives vent to. He unsheaths that sword, or at least describes doing so, in the last passage that we will look at today, Revelation chapter 2. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm still hanging in there. I haven't tuned out yet. See, I know that you'll say that because the only ones who will see this will be the ones who haven't tuned out yet. There's something good coming and it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 asks John to convey letters to the churches. Again, you want to know more about this, come to the class today. But one of those letters goes to a church in a city called Pergamum. And Jesus says, write these words to that church. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. You recognize the language there. By the way, Revelation is not only the last book in the library of the Bible, but most likely the scholarly consensus is that Revelation is the last book of the Bible written. So, that it is conceivable that John, who is hearing these words from Jesus, is himself familiar with the letter to the Hebrews and with the letter to the Ephesians that gives rise to our topic of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God today. In any case, obviously, the Spirit himself and Jesus Christ knows these passages and is referencing them here. And he's the one who holds that sword. Jesus says, I know where you live. And friend, this is not just to those in Pergamum. Jesus is saying it to you and to me today. He's saying it to us. I know where you live. I know the situation you're in. I know what's going on. I know what's going down. And Jesus says, where you live is where Satan is enthroned. The prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the ruler of this present darkness, that's where you live. And Jesus says, I know it, but I also know this, says Jesus, you remain true to my name. Here, when he says my name, he's not just saying you use the name of Jesus. You call yourself a Christian. He's saying, you know who I am. You are covered in my character. You're armored in me. I know it. I see it. And your action reflects it. You did not renounce your faith in me, not in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Your Jesus is saying, in Pergamum, there has been a particularly focused and lethal prosecution of believers. And a, a Christian named Antipas literally has been put to death simply for being a Christian. And when they saw that, the other believers in Pergamum didn't renounce their faith. I recently watched an extraordinary film in in my uh, estimation. Uh, It is a rated R film and it is a violent film. And uh, for some of you, that means it's not the kind of material that uh, you consider appropriate for you to see. And I respect that. Bear in mind, my recommendation of it here is um, uh, mindful of that fact. So it's not for all, but there is a beautiful novel called Silence, written by a Japanese Christian that was made into a film by Martin Scorsese called Silence. And it's about Jesuit missionaries to feudal Japan who are trying to reach Christians living in Japan at that era who cannot be public about their Christian faith without risking being put to death. And The film describes the historical reality uh, that has been experienced in many nations at many times around the world and may be in fact something that you and I should be prepared to face at some day, which is these are people who are being made to make a choice, either be a Christian and die or renounce Christ and live. That's the situation that the people of Pergamum were living in and they said, We belong to Christ. Jesus said, I see, I know. And he cares. But he also says, this sword, right, has two edges. On the one side, there is that burnishing edge that is sharpening them. I see what you're doing that's right, and I want to strengthen it. But the other side is, I also need to cut into you a little, because the Lord chastens those whom he loves, and there's a bit of cancer in you that needs to be excised. I have a few things against you, says Jesus, and friends, may I say this gently, maybe we could hear Jesus speaking to us in this too, that there are some things he wants to say that might cut a little bit. He'll do it carefully. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I'm not going to get deeply into where I get my interpretive um, comments here. Again, come to the class, I'll tell you more. But suffice it to say, what Jesus is talking about here is some of you, even though you are my believers and you do have my character, you're also giving place to wrong thinking that is popular in your world. You're also giving place to certain kinds of greed, manipulation, certain kinds of uh, common and popular philosophies that have no part in me. And in doing that, you're putting yourself at odds with me repent of that repent says jesus because i am coming and if you don't repent i'll come soon to you and i'll fight against anyone who stands against me and what i'll fight with is the sword of my mouth the word of the lord in other words jesus is saying you can allow my word to penetrate you today today or you can wait for tomorrow Today, I'm here to heal. Tomorrow, says Christ, I come to conquer. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, that hidden bread of heaven that was in the very ark of the temple that came from the very heart of heaven. I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Known only to those who receive it. There's more that can be said about those statements. Come to my class and I'll tell you. But receive this in closing. The Lord is saying to you today, friend, I see you. I know where you are. I know where you hurt. I know where you're strong. And I know where you're weak. I am here for you but you have to belong to me. Hold on to your life and lose it. Be conformed to the world and be accepted by the world, but rejected by God. Or receive the word of God. Believe the spirit of God and receive the life and the light and the love of God. Today is a day to believe, to repent, and to receive. Pray with me, won't you? Lord, we hear your voice to us today. You see where we are. You know what we need. You know what we lack. You know where we're wrong. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to, Lord. But you yourself make intercession for us. With groanings too deep to be heard, because you intercede in the Holy Spirit. Pierce us, Lord. Pierce our pride. Pierce our fear. Pierce our philosophies that stand in opposition to you, even though we think they're right, because we have the knowledge of good and evil. Lord, cut through all of that with your truth, so that we would receive your light. We come to you as clay jars broken, but we also come to you as lamps lit by you. We come to you as sinners, but we also come believing your word that says, by faith, through your blood, by your word, we are made whole and enter into your rest. I pause in the prayer to say, friend, if you have something to repent of, repent of it now. If you have something to release something that has a hold of you and God is saying let go of it but you realize I can't let go of it because it won't let go of me let the word of the Lord come like a sword to cut those chains off of you right now and even if it means cutting away some of you Jesus said if your right arm causes you to sin cut it off if your right eye causes you to sin poke it out let the word of the lord come and remove from you anything that is not of him because anything that is not of him is not really of you let him cut you into the covenant of christ so that you can receive the peace that comes by faith the cleansing that comes by blood and the hope that comes in the night For there is a day dawning, friends, and there is a Lord returning. Let us make ourselves ready for him. And let us raise his word in our world by his spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.